bringing to life the souls of the past that until now have been lost to history. Talking Heart Island is a half-hour weekly podcast that explores the history of Heart Island, America's largest mass graveyard. Heart Island has been used as New York City's Potter's Field since 1869. It is estimated there are over one million people buried there. Because of recent advances in DNA and fingerprint technology, the identities of some of these previously forgotten and anonymous people have been revealed. The results are truly shocking. Talking Heart Island will interview a special guest each week, selected from an extraordinary assembly of scholars, authors, and scientists in the fields of history, law, medicine, and the arts, as we unravel a secret kept hidden for 150 years. So welcome to Talking Heart Island. And now, here is our host, investigative history writer Michael T. Keene. Thank you very much, Norma Jean. And this is Michael Keene, and we are Talking Heart Island. Today's episode is brought to us by Oasis of Rochester, New York. They strive to see that adults age 50 and older have opportunities to pursue vibrant, healthy, productive, and meaningful lives. To contact them, go to oasisnet.org. And the Garrett Smith Estates, home to the National Abolition Hall of Fame. And you can reach them at GarrettSmith.com. And one more quick thing before we begin. We've been asked, how can you listen to previous episodes of Talking Heart Island's podcast? And you may do so by logging on to our website, MichaelTKeen.com. She lay on the floor for three days. A slip and fall had rendered her helpless, at the mercy of fate, as neighbors came and went just feet from her door. It was the mailman who became concerned that she had not been picking up her mail, who finally called 911. And so began Leola Dickerson's journey of hospitals, nursing homes, and a court-appointed guardian that would eventually end on Hard Island. And join us today as we attempt to navigate the complex world of guardianship law. And I can't think of a better guest to uh, help us with that than Peter Strauss. He's the senior partner at Piro, Connor, and Strauss in New York City, which counsels on trust and estate law, including guardianship law. Mr. Strauss is considered to be one of the pioneers in elder law in the United States. He is a distinguished adjunct professor of law at New York Law School, and he earned his law degree at NYU School of Law. And welcome, Peter Strauss, to Talking Heart Island. How are you? Good morning, Michael. I'm fine, uh, and I'm looking forward to having this discussion with you. Great. 
Uh, you know, the, uh, the first uh, thought that I had when I was preparing for um, your interview is to ask you, why did you choose a state or, well, actually a state law, but also elder law as your area of a specialty? How did that come about? Uh, it's, it's a fascinating story, Michael. Um, I had been doing trust and estates law and uh, doing planning for people to uh, make sure their estates were protected. And then one day I had a call from a friend who was the director of social services at the Long Island Jewish Hospital. And she said, I have a terribly sad case here of a man who'd had a stroke. He can never go home. He has to go to our nursing home and Medicaid will pay for the nursing home, but they're going to take most of his income and his wife will not have enough income uh, because she has a modest social security check to pay the rent. And certainly uh, she also likes to eat occasionally. So my friend said, what can you do? And I said, well, I don't know anything about Medicaid. I don't know about uh, these issues. She said, well, you were trained well. You went to a good law school. I think you're smart. Come up with something. Well, I decided to represent the wife, and we sued the husband, this poor gentleman who could never speak and never walk and never feed himself, for support, claiming that even though he was now a public charge and Medicaid was a program for poor people and he had to contribute his income to reimburse the state, he also had an obligation to support his wife, and his incapacity didn't destroy that obligation. And you know what? A family court judge agreed with me and the appellate court agreed with me and Medicaid and New York State were not happy. But it opened my eyes to the world of seniors who were poor, the need for for assistance with planning for later life. How do you pay for long term care? How do we preserve autonomy when you maybe have lost some of your functioning? And now that we have statistics that show at age 85, one half of our senior population will not be functioning. This is what elder law is all about. And that case opened my eyes. The, um, the issue of court appointed guardians, as it affected in particular, Leola Dickerson was an attorney who was appointed a guardian. And when she uh, died, uh, rather than liquidating her assets, which were modest, but she had a home, she had some money, uh, he kept the money. And so therefore, she wasn't even afforded a decent burial and was therefore taken to Hart Island. Is this a situation that you have seen in your own practice, something similar to this? I have seen quite a few cases where guardians who are fiduciaries, who have an obligation to their wards, who have an obligation to the courts, have stolen money from people or somehow uh, taken advantage of their positions. Now, let me say that this has not happened with all guardians. There were many wonderful lawyers, who, social workers, accountants, other friends and family who become guardians, and they don't steal. I also want to say that in terms of financial elder abuse, probably 75% of all of that comes from family members, neighbors, and friends. But in the case of guardianships, it does happen. 
about eight years ago, there was one case in particular where a lawyer in, in Manhattan got appointed guardian in, in 30 or 40 cases. And that's unusual today. That normally doesn't happen. But he did get appointed because he was nominated by the families. And he stole close to $30 million from 40 or so guardianships. He spent some time in prison. I was called by uh, the administrative judge in Kings County and asked if I would take on four of those cases, and I did. So that was an unusual case. But there have been notorious cases where guardians have stolen money. Now, guardians are bonded. Uh, in order to be appointed after the court designates you, in most cases, unless you're a family member and the court is satisfied that you're not going to be a financial risk, most guardians need to post a bond. And I did in those four cases where I was appointed by the court. And so there is a surety company, an insurance company that stands behind the guardianship estate so that if a guardian were to steal uh, there is uh, compensation from the insurance carrier. Uh, now, since uh, these cases uh, happened uh, 10, 15 years ago, there haven't been many serious cases of abuse since then because a new system was instituted whereby if you are going to be appointed more than a few times in a particular year or your compensation that you earn in a year is going to be um, more than $75,000. You can't get any more appointments. An airplane is going over my head as we speak. I hear uh, it. For the sound. It's okay. Um, but um, there are now protections built in that did not exist previously, but it does happen, and it is shocking. Um, and, and the courts are wrestling with this, the problem with these new rules that limit the number of guardianships that a lawyer can be uh, appointed to handle um, is, is um, discouraging experienced lawyers right. who are honest from being appointed. And we're, we're seeing the trickle-down effect that uh, inexperienced lawyers who are, are on a list that is provided to judges who handle guardianships. Inexperienced lawyers get appointments and they don't know the rules and they don't know the requirements to file their annual accountings, which are reviewed by a court examiner. And um, uh, that has led to some, if not theft, uh, some um, improper expenditures by guardians. Let me, let me ask you this. Um, let's say that you have an elderly relative, parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, what have you, are there certain red flags that uh, members of the family should be on guard with uh, in terms of perhaps uh, understanding that maybe some sort of financial abuse is taking place? Yes, um, there are there are red flags. The question is, how does the family see them? So in a typical case where uh, an older person appoints an agent under a power of attorney, and that agent is charged with assisting the older person in managing his or her financial affairs and taking over when 
that person is no longer able to perform those tasks herself, um, that person normally is not supervised by anybody. Now, in New York State, there is something called the statutory power of attorney. And one of the things that the law permits an older person to do is to nominate a person called a monitor. And you write the name of that monitor in the power of attorney. And then the monitor can review the bank accounts that are being now handled by the agent acting under the power of attorney. But you know what? In the 15 years or so that that statute has been in force and effect, I've written thousands of powers of attorney for clients. And you know what the answer is when I say to Miss Senior, would you like to name a monitor? Oh, no, 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 no. I trust my children. Oh, no, 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 no. I trust my accountant. Oh, no, no, no. I, I trust my neighbor. They would never steal. We don't need to do that. We don't need to create additional costs by having my accountant look at it. So what else can you do? Well, uh, my law firm is now working with a firm in New York called um, Eversafe, and they've developed a, a, a computer program where the senior citizen can say, yes, I, I think it's a good idea. This computer program can be used by my children to monitor unusual transactions in my financial accounts. So that a, a, a trusted son or daughter or a lawyer or a trusted accountant um, or a trusted financial planner can see on her computer uh, that something unusual is going on in the brokerage account at Merrill Lynch. Right. And you can be alerted by this program, which you can purchase at a modest monthly cost. Uh, and so the technology is being developed to monitor that. Also, in guardianships, a guardian is required to file an annual accounting with the court of all transactions, all expenditures, all money that's been received from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. And then the following year, you pick up again with another annual accounting. And these are supposed to be filed with the court in April of each year around the time when you do your tax returns. Those files, those accountings get report, get delivered to what's a person called a court examiner. And the court examiners are also appointed by the court system. Do the court examiners do a good job? For the most part, yes. And then the court examiner reports to the court whether that annual accounting should be approved or whether there are problems. And those annual accountings for guardians should, in theory, pick up any improprieties, any inappropriate expenditures. For example, a guardian may just happen to use guardianship funds to pay for his or her bill coming in from Best Buy or his or her telephone bill. Right. Nobody's going to be able to see that if the amount isn't tremendously uh, out of line. But, you know, do the court examiners really get to review all of those accounts? Did they do it in a timely manner or do these accounts just pile up and never get reviewed? So there is a system, but like every system, particularly with courts that are uh, low in, in, in budgetary allocations for staff, 
uh, a lot of these things may slip through the cracks. So um, limiting the number of guardianships that a lawyer can uh, have uh, is one way, but that has its disadvantages. Um, I think that the solution to improprieties by guardians, whether they are lawyers or non-lawyers, is openness, publicity, the ability of the media and the public to review the annual accountings of a guardian, and that would shed light on inappropriate behavior. Now, you could argue, on the other hand, that that violates the rights of privacy. You know, one of the things seniors are very concerned about, as they should be, is that their personal and business affairs do not become public records. Should we seal guardianship cases? Should we not allow the public and the media to view annual accountings? Well, that protects privacy, but it may hide uh, inappropriate behavior. So we, we, we haven't yet found the balance between those two inconsistent goals. So what would be a reasonable strategy if you have, a, again, an elderly um, a relative, you're not the guardian, you know someone has been appointed uh, the guardian. Um, the idea of having the uh, computer software program where you can actually monitor check writing, uh, perhaps uh, they're using a Visa card, Visa debit card, or what have you, is great because you can do that in your own home. Um, but are, are there other organizations, elder organizations, in, say, your own hometown, and we're talking in New York now, uh, that can help you in this regard to, because it seems like there's a lot of moving parts. Um, well, there are, is there yeah. some way that you can get help? There, there, are, there are several not-for-profit organizations in New York City who, who do assist the elderly, uh, and, and they do have programs where they can help you with your financial affairs. But I think that would only help a relatively small number of people. We probably have five or 600 new guardianships every year in New York City. That's a lot. Um, and, and there are five counties within the city of New York and each county has a few judges, one or more judges who handle guardianships. Um, it's a little different than in, you know, in rural areas where you've got one judge who handles commercial cases and criminal cases and may also handle the surrogates court matters and may also handle guardianships and everybody knows each other. And there is there is a, a more sensitivity to this. It's much harder in New, in New York. Now, among the things that I would recommend is that more clients be encouraged to appoint a monitor, perhaps their accountant. Every you know, Most people who have guardianships have some means, not all. Some are very poor people and, and they need a guardianship in order to handle their medical decisions and where they're going to live so that on the personal side. But if people appointed a, a monitor and then the law was amended uh, so that when the, the uh, guardian is obligated to file an annual accounting, the law would direct that a copy of that accounting be sent to the person that the incapacitated person had named as the monitor so that that person, probably an accountant, 
or a financial planner or a lawyer who was not the guardian would have an opportunity to see the same annual account that was submitted to the court system, which may be backlogged, but that monitor would be able to take a quick look and 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 fairly quickly and easily ascertain whether there were some matters that need to be checked. Now, we don't do that now. And while I, rec- I understand that many of my clients don't think a monitor is necessary, that may be a solution that has some legs. And, and, you know, just having this conversation with you makes me realize that maybe I, as the lawyer who's dealing with the planning for the client, maybe I need to play a more aggressive role in in getting my clients to understand this is no big deal. If you're, if at some point in the future, you're going to have a guardian, then uh, maybe that annual account needs to be sent to your accountant. And even just having a family member be your agent under power of attorney so that you don't need a guardianship, because if you have the power of attorney and you have a healthcare proxy, there should be no need for a guardianship proceed. You've got your surrogates to handle your your financial affairs and handle your healthcare decision making that if we can build into that system more review by someone other than the agent herself or himself might prevent a lot of this because if people know they're going to be reviewed every year or every other year it may cut down on the abuse or if it does happen that there's a better chance of it being discovered Right. Um, let me ask you this. At what point during this whole process should someone be thinking of, say, contacting you uh, and, and helping them? And, and how would they actually go about doing that? Well, we have a website. Um, if your listeners are interested, it's, it's um, uh, www.pierolaw.com. Uh, my senior partner, Rather, my founding partner, Lou Piero, who is based in our Albany, New York office, um, started the firm a number of years ago. Uh, so PieroLaw.com uh, is a good place to start. Or if you just Google um, Elder Law Attorneys New York State, we'll, we'll certainly come up. Um, but I, 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 I don't know whether there are financial uh, abuses that calling private attorneys is is the solution here. Um, okay, I, there right. is uh, in at least in New York City, the counties uh, have within the district attorney's offices there there uh, are units called um, crimes against the elderly, financial crimes against the elderly. Um, and, and I think that that is probably, if, if it's a serious matter, the place to turn to. Um, now, another thing I think that the community should be aware of, banking institutions, the banks, are under very strict confidentiality rules. And that is good. That's a good thing. Um, bankers, officers who, who are sitting behind the window at the teller's platform um, should not be disclosing concerns about um, people who come in perhaps with a home care aid uh, once a week and withdraw $1,000 in cash. 
On the other hand, if there is a sense that there is something going on, that, that this is an elderly person who is not functioning at the normal level, and there is some reasonable suspicion of some impropriety uh, about those bank accounts or somebody on the telephone with an older person with a stockbroker, that there is some reasonable concern about some improprieties, that money is being requested to be sent out of that account to some third party, then perhaps there needs to be some, um, I don't want to use the word loosening, but some uh, requirement that the banks have some obligation for reporting. Now, that is changing. Um, I believe there are some relatively new regulations put out by the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. New York State is considering uh, amendments to the banking law uh, that would uh, adopt a system where banks could make certain reporting to the appropriate government agencies about apparent misappropriation of funds or, or mismanagement or theft. And we're trying to draw the balance again between protecting seniors who may have incapacities and privacy. So, you know, where the elder law section of the New York State Bar Association and the and the senior law section and the trust and estate section lawyers are all sort of negotiating with the banking association, both in terms of commercial banks and savings banks to try to get a compromise and I and I think we're close and and that will help but that's an area where change needs to be made there needs to be more appropriate reasonable reporting requirements to state agencies uh, both criminal and 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 not-for-profit organizations as well so that there could be some protective action taken I understand you know in the uh two to three minutes we have left. You and I were talking off camera, off stage about a fascinating uh, individual and a fascinating case uh, involving Ruth Proskauer Smith. Uh, could you just describe this for us? Because I know that you knew her uh, in, in terms of what happened. You know, um, I knew Ruth Proskauer Smith, who died at 102, and as the New York Times article that you s sent to me to read uh, so I would uh, understand the Heart Island story a little better, um, Ruth Proskauer Smith died at 102. She was a very well-known New York philanthropist from the Proskauer family. Uh, uh, Judge Jacob Proskauer was the founder of the firm then known as Proskauer Rose. Uh, he he was highly respected. I remember hearing Judge Proskauer uh, at a at a conference in Washington on the same platform <laughs> with Lyndon Johnson when he was president. That was the kind of man Judge Proskauer was, and mm -hmm. and and Ruth Proskauer Smith. Uh, I I think they were siblings, and so it was a very distinguished New York family. And and Ruth gave her body to. Uh, NYU Medical College uh, for research. And um, lo and behold, and, and maybe by mistake, uh, I'm sure they wouldn't have done it intentionally, um, Ruth's body wound up uh, in, at Hart Island in, in Potter's Field. Well, a, a horrible tragedy because she 
was not a poor woman and certainly had the funds for an appropriate burial. Um, but I knew Ruth uh, through community work that I had done over the years, and she was a vital woman at 102. And and let me tell you, um, I, I wish that um, my mind will be working at 102 as Ruth's is or was. Um, it's interesting. Some seniors, we we there are around 130,000 Americans now over 100, including my wife's cousin who's living in an assisted living facility in Manhattan, uh, will be 102 this month. And when I saw her recently, she said to me, Peter, um, could you get me an audio book about 13th century Chinese art? That's an area that I've not yet studied. That's right. So uh, I wish for all of us that even though we might be sitting in a wheelchair, that our minds were working because I could deal with that. Um the loss of one's mind and being vulnerable to predators, both physically and financially, uh, is a big problem in this country, and we've got to deal with it. Well, hopefully uh, we've done our small part in uh, alerting people uh, to that. And uh, to that end, Peter Strauss, I'm very uh, happy that you agreed to participate in uh, one of our episodes, and thank you very much. It was enjoyable. It's a fascinating topic, and I, I hope our audience uh, will think about talking to their own professional advisors. Uh, it, it is something that you need to do while you have capacity, while you can think about a system that will give you and, and your family protection. Thank you. Hi, this is Norma Jean. I wanted to take a moment to remind you in order to receive updates or news about upcoming episodes of Talking Heart Island, simply go to the subscribe page on our website, located at www.michaeltkeen.com, and enter your email address. If you have any questions about the podcast itself, or simply wish to contact any team members for book inquiries, voiceovers, website or graphics design, Use our contact page, also found at www.michaeltkeen.com. And if you're enjoying the show and would like to give us a review, please do so at iTunes. We would greatly appreciate it. So until next week, this is Norma Jean, and we're Talking Heart Island. Mm-hmm.